This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Appetite of Tyranny by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 6 Letters to an Old Garibaldian. The First Letter. Italy twice hast thou spoken, and time is athirst for the third. Swinburne. My dear, it is a long time since we met, and I fear these letters may never reach you. But in these violent times I remember with a curious vividness how you brandished a paintbrush about your easel when I was a boy, and how it thrilled me to think you had so brandished a bayonet against the Teutons. I hope with the same precision and happy results. Round about that period the very pigments seemed to have some sort of picturesque connection with your national story. There seemed to be something gorgeous and terrible about Venetian red, and something quite catastrophic about burnt sienna. But somehow or other I saw in the street yesterday the colors on your flag. It reminded me of the colors on your palette. You need not fear that I shall try to entangle you or your countrymen in the other matters which it is for Italians alone to decide. You know the perils of either course much better than I do. Italy most assuredly has no need to prove her courage. She has risked everything in standing out that she could risk by coming in. The proclamations and press of Germany make it plain that the Germans have risen to a height of sensibility hardly to be distinguished from madness. Supposing the nightmare of a Prussian victory, they will revenge themselves on things more remote than the Triple Alliance. There was a promise of peace between them and Belgium. There was none between them and England. The promise to Belgium they broke. The promise to England they invented. It is called the Treaty of Teutonism. No one ever heard of it in this country but it seems well known in academic circles in Germany. It seems to be something connected with the color of one's hair. But I repeat that I am not concerned to interfere with your decision, save in so far as I may provide some materials for it by describing our own. For I think the first, perhaps the only fruitful work an Englishman can do now for the formation of foreign opinion, is to talk about what he really understands. The condition of British opinion. It is as simple as it is solid. For the first time, perhaps, what we call the United Kingdom entirely deserves its name. There has been nothing like such unanimity within an Englishman's recollection. The Irish and even the Welsh were largely pro-Boers, so were some of the most English of the English. No one could have been more English than Fox, yet he denounced the war with Napoleon. No one could be more English than Cobden, but he denounced the war in the Crimea. It is really extraordinary to find a united England. Indeed, until lately it was extraordinary to find a united Englishman. Those of us who, like the present writer, repudiated the South African War from its beginnings, had yet a divided heart in the matter, and felt certain aspects of it as glorious as well as infamous. The first fact I can offer you is the unquestionable fact that all these doubts and divisions have ceased. Nor have they ceased by any compromise, but by a universal flash of faith 
or, if you will, of suspicion. Nor were our internal conflicts lightly abandoned, nor our reconciliation an easy matter. I am, as you are, a democrat and a citizen of Europe, and my friends and I had grown to loathe the plutocracy and privilege which sat in the high places of our country with a loathing which we thought no love could cast out. Of these rich men I will not speak here. With your permission I will not think of them. War is a terrible business in any case, and to some intellectual temperaments this is the most terrible part of it. That war takes the young, that war sunders the lovers, that all over Europe brides and bridegrooms are parting at the church door, all that is only a commonplace to commonplace people. To give up one's love for one's country is very great, but to give up one's hate for one's country, this may also have in it something of pride and something of purification. What is it that has made the British peoples thus defer not only their artificial parade of party politics, but their real social and moral complaints and demands? What is it that has united all of us against the Prussian as against a mad dog? It is the presence of a certain spirit, as unmistakable as a pungent smell, which we feel is capable of withering all the good things in this world. The burglary of Belgium, the bribe to betray France, these are not excuses, they are facts. But they are only the facts by which we came to know of the presence of the spirit. They do not suffice to define the whole spirit itself. A good rough summary is to say that it is the spirit of barbarism. But indeed, it is something worse. It is the spirit of second-rate civilization, and the distinction involves the most important differences. Granted that it could exist, pure barbarism could not last long, as pure babyhood cannot last long. Of his own nature the baby is interested in the ticking of a watch, and the time will come when you will have to tell him, if you only tell him the wrong time. And that is exactly what the second-rate civilization does. But the vital point is here. The abstract barbarian would copy. The cockney and incomplete civilization always sets itself up to be copied. And in the case here considered, the German thinks it is not only his business to spread education, but to spread compulsory education. Science combined with organization, says Professor Ostwald of Berlin University, makes us terrible to our opponents and ensures a German future for Europe. That is, as shortly as it can be put, what we are fighting about. We are fighting to prevent a German future for Europe. We think it would be narrower, nastier, less sane, less capable of liberty and laughter than any of the worst parts of the European past. And when I cast about for a form in which to explain shortly why we think so, I thought of you. For this is a matter so large that I know not how to express it except in terms of artists like you, in the service of beauty and the faith in freedom. Prussia, at least, cannot help me. Lord Palmerston, I believe, called it a country of damned professors. Lord Palmerston, I fear, used the word damned more or less flippantly. I use it reverently. 
Rome, at her very weakest, has always been a river that wanders and widens, that waters many fields. Berlin, at its strongest, will never be anything but a whirlpool which seeks its own centre, and is sucked down. It would only narrow all the rest of Europe, as it has already narrowed all the rest of Germany. There is a spirit of diseased egoism, which at last makes all things spin upon one pinpoint in the brain. It is a spirit expressed more often in the slangs than in the tongues of men. The English call it a fad. I do not know what the Italians call it. The Prussians call it philosophy. Here is the sort of instance that made me think of you. What would you feel, first, let us say, if I mentioned Michelangelo? For the first moment, perhaps boredom, such as I feel when Americans ask me about Stratford-on-Avon. But supposing that just fear quieted, you would feel what I and everyone else can feel. It might be the sense of the majestic hands of man upon the locks of the last doors of life, large and terrible hands like those of that youth who poises the stone above Florence and looks out upon the circle of the hills. It might be that huge heave of flank and chest and throat in the slave, which is like an earthquake lifting a whole landscape. It might be that tremendous Madonna whose charity is more strong than death. Anyhow, your thoughts would be something worthy of the man's terrible paganism and his more terrible Christianity. Who but God could have graven Michelangelo, who came so near to graving the mother of God? German culture deals with the matter as follows. Michelangelo Bonarotti, 1475-1564, equals Bernard, ancestor of the family, lived in Florence about 1210. He had two sons, Berlinheri and Bunarota. By this name, occurring frequently in later generations, the family came to be called. It is a German name, compounded of Bona and Rodo. Bona and Rodo are cited as Lombard names. Bunarotti is perhaps the old Lombard Bionard, corresponding to the word Bonroth. Corresponding names are Macrot, Osteroth, Leonard, and so on, and so on, and so on. In his face he has always been well-colored. The eyes might be called small rather than large, of the color of horn, but variable with flecks of yellow and blue. Hair and beard are black. These particulars are confirmed by the portraits. First and foremost take the portrait of Bugiardi in Museo Bunarotti. Here comes to view the flecked appearance of the iris, especially in the right eye. The left may be described as almost wholly blue, and so on, and so on, and so on. In the Museo Civico at Pavia is a fresco likeness by an unknown hand, in which this fresh red is distinctly recognizable on the face. Taking all these bodily characteristics into consideration, it must be said, from an anthropological point of view, that though originally of German family, he was a hybrid between the North and West brunette race. Would you take the trouble to prove that Michelangelo was an Italian, that this man takes to prove that he was a German? Of course not. The only impression this man, who is a recognized Prussian historian, produces on your mind or mine, is that he does not care about Michelangelo. For you, being an Italian, are therefore something more than an Italian. 
and I, being an Englishman, something more than an Englishman. But this poor fellow really cannot be anything more than a Prussian. He digs and digs to find dead Prussians in the catacombs of Rome or under the ruins of Troy. If he can find one blue eye lying about somewhere, he is satisfied. He has no philosophy. He has a hobby, which is collecting Germans. It would probably be vain for you and me to point out that we could prove anything by the sort of ingenuity which finds the German wrath in Bonarotti. We could have great fun depriving Germany of all her geniuses in that style. We could say that Moltke must have been an Italian, from the old Latin root mole indicating sweetness of that general's disposition. We might say Bismarck was a Frenchman, since his name begins with the popular theatrical cry of Bis. We might say Goth was an Englishman, because his name begins with the popular sporting cry Go. But the ultimate difference between us and the Prussian professor is simply that we are not mad. The father of Frederick the Great, the founder of the more modern Hohenzollerns, was mad. His madness consisted of stealing giants like an unscrupulous traveling showman. Any man much over six foot high, whether he were called the Russian giant or the Irish giant or the Chinese giant or the Hottentot giant, was in danger of being kidnapped and imprisoned in a Prussian uniform. It is the same mean sort of madness that is working in Prussian professors such as the one I have quoted. They can get no further than the notion of stealing giants. I will not bore you now with all the other giants they have tried to steal. It is enough to say that St. Paul, Leonardo da Vinci, and Shakespeare himself are among the monstrosities exhibit at Frederick William Fair, on grounds as good as those quoted above. But I have put this particular case before you as an artist rather than an Italian, to show what I mean when I object to a German future for Europe. I object to something which believes very much in itself, and in which I do not in the least believe. I object to something which is conceited and small-minded, but which also has that kind of pertinacity which always belongs to lunatics. It wants to be able to congratulate itself on Michelangelo, never to congratulate the world. It is the spirit that can be seen in those who go bald trying to trace a genealogy, or go bankrupt trying to make out a claim to some remote estate. The Prussian has the inconsistency of the parvenu. He will labor to prove that he is related to some gentleman of the Renaissance even while he boasts of being able to buy him up. If the Italians were really great, why, they were really Germans. And if they weren't really Germans, well, then they weren't really great. It's an occupation for an old maid. Three or four hundred years ago, in the sad silence that had followed the comparative failure of the noble effort of the Middle Ages, there came upon all Europe a storm out of the south. Its tumult is of many tongues. One can hear it in the laughter of Rabelais, or for that matter the lyrics of Shakespeare. But the dark heart of the storm was indeed more austral and volcanic, a noise of thunderous wings, and the name of Michael the Archangel. And when it had shocked and purified the world and passed, a Prussian professor found a feather fallen to the earth and proved in several volumes that it could only have come from a Prussian eagle. He had seen one in a cage.
Yours, G. K. Chesterton. End of the first letter. End of chapter six.